Good morning. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. Uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we'll be reading from chapter 9 in its entirety and just a brief selection from chapter 10. So I was telling one of our elders this morning, I should have printed out the whole bulletin with all the chapters and then just said, hey, you're getting a break. We're not going to read all of it. So it would feel like it's shorter and smaller. Uh, but it's a substantive passage. We're going to hear about the story of God and what he has done for his people. I invite you to hear the activity, the character, the nature of God in contrast with our own nature as we hear these things. So please stand for the reading of God's word as you are able. Most of all, stand in your heart for the Lord. From Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But... They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but they stiffened their neck 
and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their land with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. 
Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Skipping in chapter 10 to verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of our Lord, of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. This is the word of God for the people of God. God. At last, please be seated. I cut out great portions of chapter 10 and even great portions of names that would have been painful to read. So we are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah, as you would guess, no surprise. We have been going through this series that we're calling A Time to Rebuild. Uh, It's a book that's been up to this point where we started to have a pivot in the text, primarily focused about rebuilding the walls that were broken down of the city of Jerusalem. As the walls had been broken down, as this text even talks about this morning, because of the unfaithfulness of the people of God, that time and again they walked away from him. Time and again he was gracious to them, and eventually the only fitting consequence in his heart to bring them back one day was to let them go to let their land and their cities be destroyed. And so some 140 years, this city has sat without walls, without defenses, without predictability or security. And it is time to rebuild, time for the people of God to come back and revitalize this place, time for once again, this concrete place where you could come and meet with God. That's what the city of Jerusalem, the people of God were meant to be, a concrete, tangible expression of who God is, of knowing him. It's time to come back and revitalize that, to give new life to it. And we've said that also for us as individuals, as a church, it is time for rebuilding, coming out of a pandemic, going through all the different crises that we have gone through in our culture, in our world, all the different things that we have gone through as a church in the past several years, having a transition from a pastor of many years to a new pastor, me, looking at new directions, having new things and opportunities come into our sphere. It's a time to rebuild, to look forward. And so last week, we started looking at how the text is pivoting away, having the work of the walls finished towards the rebuilding of the people, the revitalizing of the city, that this might again be a place where you could meet with God. 
And we looked at how God was rebuilding the people through their, their connections to one another and the importance of those, how, how he was rebuilding them through being invested in tangible ways, in material financial ways in the work, and how we learned that he was doing that through having them discover his joy to do all of that for broken, sinful people. And this week, it's no surprise that we start to dig into more and more here in chapter 9, particularly the heart of the people that needed rebuilding. That's what confession is about when we do that each week. It's about digging into our hearts where they need rebuilding, doing an analysis, letting these things come to light, letting God speak to them and fix them. And so that's what this chapter centers in on. We start to see how God's rebuilding his people through confession, but through something maybe surprising for us in confession, that he's doing that through story. And so this morning, we specifically see the story of his unchanging faithfulness to a people who are constantly changing in their faithfulness to him. So we're going to look at just two things this morning. We're going to look at the importance of story for rebuilding, and we're going to look at the contours of this story that God has given his people for rebuilding primarily in chapter 9. So the importance of story and then the contours of the story. But before we do that, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we enter in before the Lord? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this story, this word that you have given us about who you are Thank you for the opportunity to look back and see who you have been over time, to see your faithfulness and patience through generations, through seasons, through trials, through oppression, through hardship, through, through sin and failure, through whatever it may be. We see you, the faithful God, the unmoving, the firm foundation, the rock of ages that does not change. And it seems like so much of our lives, Lord, is just change is moving, is unsteady, is unbalanced. We in ourselves feel that, feel that we are ever-changing, never arriving, always on the verge of something. But God, you are, you show yourself, and I pray that you would reveal yourself through your word this morning to be that unchanging rock on which our changing lives might rest. Would you give us that rest that we so desperately need this morning? Would you be our rock? Would you be our shepherd and carry us forever? In your name we pray, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to have those open. Or if you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We're going to go back through the text a little bit this morning together. Uh, but starting out with the importance of story for our rebuilding as it relates to confession, uh, we're going to look here for this point at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 9. Now, the people are gathered together again as they were last week, but this time they are not going to enter into celebration. If you remember last time, the people start to break down. They recognize recognize their own sinfulness, the ways that some of these things that this passage articulates was true about them. The brokenness they recognize comes out, but Ezra, who was a, a, a leader of the people of God at that time as well, doesn't let them stay there. He turns their hearts to celebration. But this week, the people several uh, days later have come back, and now it is actually time to do business with what their hearts started to feel. The leaders of the people in this passage are the Levites, and they invite the people into confession 
to mourning over and grieving their sin. We see that visibly. That was something that you did with your body. They put on sack clothes. Our text says earth, but you would put dirt or ashes on your head. There was a sense in which you were telling yourself the story of who you were inwardly by how you were dressed outwardly. We don't do that so much in common, uh, our modern culture, at least in the West, we're particularly a, an intellectual culture, a thinking about my mind as separate from my being, my spirit separate from my being. But in the ancient days, the people of God understood that we were an integral whole and that there was importance to doing things outwardly. That's part of why some weeks, uh, every week, uh, you may choose or not to choose, but we try to adopt a posture of humility when we confess to bow our bodies, to do something physical, to show that we are connected, that all of us needs redemption. They do something physical, explaining to themselves where they truly are. And in verse 2, it says not just that, but they also separate themselves from all others who weren't part of the people of God, not for any other reason except because they are going to acknowledge that this is their sin and theirs alone. This is not somebody else's problem. This is not somebody else's injustice. This is their injustice. And we're going to say, we're going to talk to God about what is wrong with us. They separate themselves out. And when they do that, the Levites invite them to genuinely start wrestling with these things, as verse 4 says, by crying out in a loud voice. They let their sin bother them. They expressed that it bothered them. They weren't just saying, ah, oh, well, I haven't been that good this week. No, this was a, ah, right? This is a deep frustration. You've probably had those moments. I don't know if it's a problem with your computer sometimes, your car, whatever it is, a problem with the T. You're just, ah, ah, right? Like a deep frustration over that problem. This is an expression of deep frustration over the inward problem. They let their sin grieve them. They show the people, what's the tone of this time? What's this hour to be about? What's this moment together to be about? It's about to be honest before the Lord. We talked last week about how it is okay, right, to, to bow down before God here and worship, to raise your hands and worship, to bodily express gratitude and need for him that similarly they're telling the people it is okay to express that this is where you are, to lean in in this way. This is going to be the tone and tenor of our time together. And as they set that tone, they lead the people to similarly grieve in a way that may feel surprising to us. They do that, as our text shows us, not through a list of, hey, here are the six things we want you to confess and spend some time on, or just be open before the Lord and talk about what's there. Not that those things are bad, but there's something that they do here. They invite the people to grieve their sin through story particularly through recounting God's story in Scripture. Why do it this way? Right? This isn't the way Scripture always does it. Sometimes, if you look at the Psalms, Psalms are great books of confession. They just honestly talk about what their heart is before God. But there's something particular that they were doing here. There's something important about story for their rebuilding and for their confession that's meaningful here. And I want to suggest that there, I think there are at least two reasons why story is this means that they use to call the people into confession and to spiritual rebuilding. First, because story uh, shows us, it makes us face the past. It brings us face to face with how we got here. It's not just where I am in the moment, it's how did I end up all the way 
here, right? Where, where that came out of my mouth, where I did that kind of thing, where I bailed on someone like that. How did I get here? Story makes us face the path that led to that decision. Because our sins are not isolated incidents. They are the tip of an iceberg that pokes above the water for a moment. There is a whole story, a whole path, a whole way of life that has led me to that expression of wronging someone else or abandoning someone else in some way. Story makes us deal with the rest of the iceberg to see how we got here. But story also draws us back to seeing the context for when and how all that happened is not just in some isolated, lonely part of the universe where there is no God and there is no help, but it makes us see God even at work patiently with us in our past while all that was happening. Story keeps us from letting sin, sin seem so big that it eclipses God and removes him utterly from the picture that all we see is our badness, all we see is our guilt. Story and the story of God helps us see that this happens in the context, the larger story of who God is and what he has been doing. See, story is where both the truth of who we are and the truth of who God is who he has been, who he will be, are fully on display. It's where we have, yes, the revelation of our sin and how we got here and the depths of it and the revelation in time and space of a Savior that can do something about those things. Story is where we see the divine crossing the threshold of the mortal, bridging the divide between time and eternity to break through and intervene, not for good people, but for broken people. Scripture is the record of God breaking through for broken people. Scripture is the record of God delivering difficult people. So scripture is not a story, and this passage is not a story, teaching us to take our sin away into some shadowy corner and deal with it by ourselves and then come back to God, but a story that points us to God as the one who takes it away for us, as the one that we bring it to, not the one that we hide it from. He knows what's going on. He has seen it. It is not out of his sight. It's saying, be known, be seen, bring these things before him that he might take it away. But I don't know if it's true about you, but it's true about me that so often I feel like I've got to take it away. I can't come back to my Bible. I can't come back to prayer. I can't come back to church until I feel like I've done away with it. That is not what scripture is leading you to do. Scripture is saying, get in here, get into prayer, get in here. That's where sin gets dealt with. That's how it gets taken away back in the story of God. Worked out under the mercy and the grace of God. It's in that story that we can genuinely lament our sin before him, in front of him, collapsing into his arms as someone who knows and who cares. See, the Levites are leading us to the right context for dealing with these kind of heavy problems, with the reality of who the people were, of who we are, 
The context for doing that is the story of God. This is what we need for confession in our hearts and rebuilding ourselves, rebuilding our church, rebuilding our individual spiritual lives. That's why confession isn't the first thing we do each week. It follows God speaking first. It's situated in a larger story of God's acting and calling out and moving towards us in grace. We confess, yes, we must confess, but we do that in the context of God's gracious story. So secondly, let's look more closely at the contours of that story that the people recount here and what that reveals to us about the heart of God for those who would confess. So I'll invite you now to look at verses 6 through 37 here. I'm going to kind of summarily deal with these, but each section of chapter 9 is retelling a, a chapter, an era, you could say, in the history of God's relationship to his creation and to his specifically chosen people that he would bring redemption through. And each of those chapters reveals something about the character of God. Each of these stories, each of these eras is not just about confessing what happened, just about understanding what happened, but also seeing the character of who God is. Uh, If you start in verse 6, we see the era of creation. It says, God, you made it all. You made heaven, you made earth, you made the sea, you made all that is in them, and you preserve and you sustain these things. Your character is that you care. You nurture and you are worthy of worship. Verses 7 and 8 show us the era of the patriarchs. It says, you chose Abraham and you made a covenant promise to bless him to be a blessing. It shows us the character of God is that he keeps his promises for he is righteous. Verses 9 and following show us the era of the Exodus where God delivered his people from suffering. He provided for them in the wilderness after he brought them out of oppression. He showed them how to live. He gave them laws and rules for how to be a free people, slaves no more, to, to show them what life ought to be like when you are not slaves, but when you are a free people. That's what the commandments are about. That's what the laws are about. This is what it looks like to be free with a holy God and his character showing through this is a God who is strong, sympathetic, generous, powerful, caring, praiseworthy. It says you made a name for yourself, that that you are known as the kind of God who would do these things for his people. But these chapters and eras that follow also show the actions and the character of the people of God in contrast with God himself. These are the things that are the cause for their lament. Starting in verse 16, we actually get a break in the pattern. Each time it's been an era of God's work and the character of God's goodness, another era of God's work, another aspect of his goodness, and all of a sudden we get a break in the pattern because now it's God's gracious acts and the unfaithfulness of the people. It's the first time the pattern breaks. What follows is a pattern of brokenness where God acts in faith, but they refuse to. God acts in mercy, but they turn away. God shows patience, and they have absolutely no interest in hearing from him. 
God is ready to forgive, to provide, to deliver again and again, but they have absolutely no gratitude, no appreciation, no love for God. That's what happens in these following verses. And through that cycle, that pattern, we see how how our own hearts, even under the warmth of God's grace, just as it was true for them that God blessed them time and again, that he delivered them time and again, even under the warmth of God's kindness and deliverance, when left to our own devices, we intentionally walk out of the light into the shadows. God blesses, and we walk away. I'm sure we all feel that at certain points in time. We feel what that hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I feel that's true of me a lot of times. We recognize ways that we run even when God has been good, ways that we laugh at the face that would welcome us back, Uh, ways that we just slap away the hand that would try and help us up, ways that we plug our ears to the voice that would call us beloved. This passage shows them and shows us something in us is broken. This is not the right way to respond to blessing, to love, to care, to helpfulness. We should respond to that kind of thing with love, with trust, with appreciation, with with excitement, with joy, with an eagerness, with pursuit, with, with obedience and love and faithfulness. But the reality is we don't. Perhaps it, it's like times when, when others, uh, whether ourselves or family members we know, seem to willfully self-destruct. They just turn your back on you. They turn away from you. They don't want anything to do with you. They cut you out of their life. They do things that intentionally hurt themselves, make life worse for themselves. They make terrible choices on purpose. We self-destruct at times and make terrible choices on purpose, willfully. We turn away from what's good knowing precisely that it's bad for us, and we do it anyway. It's really hard to endure when you're around someone that is in that stage, that is just self-destructing. It's really hard when you are self-destructing even to hold on in the midst of that. And it's something that we would naturally expect God, if he is like us, which praise him, he is not, if he was like us, that he would eventually just get fed up with and abandon us and say, I can't be around this. But the beauty of God's story is that he has the power and the desire to upend our self-destructiveness. God moves closer even as we move farther away. He remains faithful even when we're unfaithful. Do you see that new balance, that new pattern in the text? It goes from God's actions to his character, his actions to his character, his actions to their unfaithfulness, but now his faithfulness, their unfaithfulness, but now his care, their unfaithfulness, but now his salvation. He doesn't stop jumping behind them. He doesn't stop chasing them. When they move farther away, he gets closer. He holds tight. He keeps moving in. It is not the case that when we move away from God, God bails on you. 
That's not the God that we have here. That is not the God of Scripture. God is not going to bail on you. Hear me say that clearly. God is not going to bail on you even when you bail on Him. He does not let go so easily. He will not lose what is so precious to him so easily. He will not give up now so easily. If he started out, he is going to finish. If he began a good work in you, Paul says, he will bring it to completion. If he started, he will not bail on you. This pattern goes on and on. Once he started, he keeps going. His heart, as we talked about last week, in discovering his joy to bring sinners back is that he goes out to us when we're running away. But if we're honest, when we've run so many times, right, when you get older and older and you feel the long list behind you of the things that you have done and the ways that you have just not been who you've wanted to be, we can't help but wonder Yeah, but is the story going to end that way? Is that really going to be true for me? And that's the point that people come to in in verse 36 of chapter 9. They acknowledge where all this has led them, that they are de facto slaves at that time. Yeah, they've been able to go back, but they are still oppressed. They are not citizens in their own land. They don't own anything. Anything that's happening is simply because someone is not oppressing them at that moment that could oppress them. They acknowledge that all that is because they led themselves there, that God was actually right to bring them there, that there was nothing that he did wrong. It's what they did wrong. And in response to that, recognizing that they've kind of come to the end of their rope, they've come to that part in the story again where they need to cry out, they make a covenant with God, what we call it a deeply binding promise to come back to faithfulness before him, and they all sign it. Rich and poor, powerful and lowly, everybody is seen, if you look in chapter 10, signing on to this covenant. And the rest of chapter 10 talks about exactly what they're going to do. It says, because we need to come back to you, God, because this is who we've been, because we, we need you to step in. We're here. We need you to show up on the other end again. This is what we're going to be like. We are going to come back to you. We are going to do these things. We are going to bring our, ourselves to you. We are going to support the ministry and the work. We're going to be humble before you. We're going to do the things that you call us morally to do. That's a long list in chapter 10 of all the things that they're talking about that they, they need to do tangibly if they're coming back to God to be spiritually rebuilt. And essentially what they're saying is this is what the story that we have just talked about shows us to do. The story has told us this is what we do, that when we walk away, we come back to you believing that you are still right here, that you're still close, that you are still chasing us down. We're trusting that this is who you are, that who you've said you have been is who you will continue to be, that though we change, you do not change. Making a covenant was them putting themselves in God's hands. That's what it says, curses and oaths. Covenants were things that had consequences. That if you didn't do what you said you were going to do, there were going to be painful consequences to that. They're saying, we are putting ourselves in your hands. Whatever you think is right, we will do. Because you are a God of mercy and steadfast love. 
That's who we believe you are. That's what they're saying in this covenant. As we believe this is who you have been, this is where we found ourselves. Please show up for us. But the text gives us no speech back from God saying that he would commit. There's no prophet who comes in and tells Nehemiah or Ezra, thus says the Lord, I will save you. We're just left wondering, how's the story going to end? They're still slaves to the Persian Empire. Even after they make this covenant, they're still an oppressed people. They still need delivering, even though the walls have been rebuilt. They are not rebuilt. They're not whole. Not to mention they still need that spiritual delivering, even with some of their, their spiritual life beginning to be rebuilt. They recognize that they are nowhere near where they want to be, where God's called them to be. And if anything, they're concerned, right? Because if you're following the story, the pattern is getting worse and worse, not better and better. They're not winding up closer to God. They are winding down, getting farther and farther from God. That's what God's people have been doing up to this point. So if anything, they're thinking, what's going to stop this pattern from continuing? If the last time we walked away from you, the consequence was exile, what's going to happen when we can't do this again? What's going to stop me from wandering away from you even though I'm, I'm feeling convicted in this moment? I'm binding myself to you. I feel like I need to come back. What's going to stop me from drifting away again just like the people before me drifted away? And the answer biblically is that, and even from chapter 9, is that what, what stops them, what will stop them, what will stop us is what stops any of it in the first place, God breaking through. The character of God crossing that threshold, delivering the difficult, breaking through for the broken and making a covenant that people were hoping that God would do that, that, that he would be who he had shown himself to be. They were trusting in that. But they would have to wait. There was no immediate promise given of that, only the expectation that this is who he has been and the hope that that's who he will be, that he would finish the pattern, that he would move again behind them and draw them back, that he would show up for them despite them being themselves, that he would do it in a way that finally put an end to their walking away that would really give them a real rest, a real peace, a real confidence that would, that would make not just the city be rebuilt and whole again, but them actually be rebuilt and whole again. It's maybe more painfully obvious now that they can see the city walls rebuilt that they can recognize there is a huge gulf between what I see and where I am. They needed God to do a real, genuine restoration, a real, genuine rebuilding that would actually last, that would stand the test of time. They were looking for something, hoping for something that would do more even than what God has done before. More than he had done with Abraham, more than he had done with Moses, more than he had done with Joshua, more than he had done with David, more than he had done even with Nehemiah. They recognize even in this moment when God has showed up for them in huge ways, we actually still need something more from you. Something could, that could stop all of that self-destruction that just keeps unwinding. And in that, they were looking for Jesus. 
for that time when God would actually break through and enter into the story in a new and dramatic way, in a way he never had before, to put an end to sin and death and brokenness in a way where he wouldn't merely point to hope that there is a time coming when you will be made whole, but when he would actually do it, when he would be good to what he said he would do to all those covenant promises like he had made to Abraham. He wouldn't just point to deliverance through, through miracles and power like he did with Moses. He wouldn't just point to deliverance through systems of sacrifice and atonement like he did with the priests. He wouldn't just point to deliverance and heart change like he did through the prophets, but he would come and deliver in a way where he would actually step in himself and make the change in his own person. Where he would not just help us from the outside, but he would step into our very existence, incarnate, that's what that means, step into our nature and fix it from within, breaking all that was broken in us by letting himself be broken on the cross, finally letting all that wickedness be broken down, be broken in half, completely stopped through that sacrifice to end all sacrifices, through that promise to fulfill all that promises, to stop all the unraveling. See, Jesus is the climax of this story. He is that final bookend that the story needs, that final stop that finally makes all of this unraveling, all of this unwinding finally stop. He's what the story needs, what our story needs. And it's graciously that God gives us him and unites us to him by faith through the Holy Spirit that we might have his life living in us, that that unraveling might stop because the life of Jesus Christ has moved into your life. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It is not about feeling a little better. It's not about having a little better life here and now. It is about being united to the eternal God to have the life that we were meant to have in the beginning. Back in that first chapter when he had creation, when we were face to face with him, when we were meant to walk with him in peace and joy forever. All the things that we long for, all the things that you wish would never end in life, could I just have a little more of that? Could I experience a little more of that? That's an echo of the fullness we were meant to have with God. We are meant to have that back in Jesus, united, brought into him, that the unraveling that never was supposed to happen would be done with and we would be back in that place of flourishing. He draws us not just for a little help. If it was just a little help, why would he have come? Why would he have paid that price? Why would he have sweat and bled and died and been broken and beaten just so that you and I could feel a little better every other week? Now, he came to completely change us from top to bottom, to change our world from top to bottom because all of it needs restoration and rebuilding. And he and he alone is the one that could do it because all of us were broken. The broken vase can't fix itself. He had to come and fix us. We needed to be put back together to stop disintegrating. And God says, that is the price it's going to take. I know this is where the story is going to end. And I want to pay that price. Just like we talked about last week, see the joy of God that wants to step to the back of the line and keep paying the price to bring you home. We can have a greater confidence than the people of chapter 9 or chapter 10 than in saying, God, I need you, that he will actually carry you to the end. 
We have a greater hope in Jesus. And in light of that, I want to invite you to do two things briefly in a more concrete way to bring that hope home this week. And just to identify which story you're living in and to make meaning out of the right story. So I want to invite you, as you're going through your week, as things come up and you start to feel frustrated, you feel anxious or angry, ask yourself, which story am I living out of? Am I being more like the people of Israel in verse 18 of chapter 9 at Mount Sinai? Am I trying to reinterpret, making some kind of golden calf of, I do this life by myself, I fix myself, I do these things, this is the God who has delivered me, is me, is my efforts, is my abilities? Am I trying to reshape the story instead of letting myself be found in God's story? Am I trying to make it about some other power? Am I trying to manipulate things? Where am I living out of a different story this week? Where is it by my power instead of completely by his? Where is there in the life that I think I'm living right now no hope for those who confess? Where is there no place for me to say, yeah, I've been like that. That's who I am. Where is there no grace to confess even on those who came before us who did terrible things before us that we ought to confess and say those were wrong? Where is there no pattern of God breaking through for the broken in my mindset? Where is the gospel not actually all the way fully integrated into life? Where am I living out of a different story. Start coming back to this story, to a God who delivers the difficult, who breaks through not for the best, but for the broken. And secondly, when you're in that story, make meaning of your present and your future through that story. That's what the people do in our text here. In verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 32, the people show God what they hope for. They say, God, remember our hardship. Let not these things be, be passing in your sight. And they also say, here's what we acknowledge. We want you to remember our hardship even though we caused it. They situate what they hope for and the truth of who they are. They let those two things sit together inside the story of who God is. They use this story of the past to guide them forward in their future. I want to invite you, do the same. Let those things coexist, the reality of who you are and what you hope for. Let those sit inside God's story. Make meaning going forward out of the fact that, yes, I am broken, but my confidence is God moves to the other side of my brokenness and will bring me home. I'm going to make meaning of what I'm going through through this story. That's my, that's my commitment, that there is grace for me, there is hope for me, that God is going to step to the other side of the story, that I have a future because Jesus Christ is my future, and He is right now at the right hand of the Father, undying, undefiled, unfading, and glory forever. And by the Holy Spirit, I'm united to Him. And as Paul says in Romans, what could separate us from the love of God? Let's pray. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect with God in prayer and suggest a few things for you to, to thank God for entering into your story, for breaking through for you, or to confess the ways that, that you've walked away from God, even when he's been kind, or to ask God to, to help you live out of his story, to make us truly alive in him, to anchor our hopes in that that alive with Jesus now kind of hope. Let's take a few moments and pray.
Father, as I start to hear the voices of our children coming up the stairs from children's worship, would you teach us to be like them, joyful, running up the steps of your house to be with you, to find you, to celebrate, to be confident that you really do love us and that you will make a way. In your son's name we pray, amen.